Welcome to Sustainable Futures, the sustainability podcast from Kantar, the world's leading marketing data and analytics company. In each episode, we speak with senior experts from a wide range of disciplines to bring broad understanding to complex topic areas and shine a light on the most pressing sustainability issues facing business and marketing, all designed to help marketers create sustainable futures for brands and business. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Kantar's Sustainable Futures webinar, where every two weeks we explore the impact of social and environmental issues on the world of business and brands. And we do this with guests from industry, finance, academia, social business and NGOs. My name is Jonathan Hall and I'm managing partner of Kantar's Sustainable Transformation Practice. Now, Kantar is a world leading data analytics and consulting business and the Sustainable Transformation Practice works at the intersection of brands, people and sustainability. And I'm delighted to have with me today, Stephanie Sarka, CEO of One Atelier. Welcome, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Well, no, it's great to have you here. So Stephanie, would you mind just um, telling us a bit about yourself and about One Atelier, just to so that uh, to frame the conversation? Yes, briefly, I was always wired as an entrepreneur. I started my career actually on Wall Street in the mergers and acquisitions department of Goldman Sachs. And even though that was a two-year in, uh, program, I quickly realized I belonged on the other side of the table. And I think the story starts from there. I did my two years, but it was by kicking the tires and being on site in all sorts of different interesting companies where I felt the energy and the desire to be a builder. Um, and that's what I like to say. I'm a builder, not a banker. So I didn't spend some time with International Flavors and Fragrances in France, actually, and joined their creative unit. Um, which was a- adequate confirmation for me that I'd made the right choice. Spent a couple of years at grad school at Harvard and then went to coach. And that was really where I got to learn virtually every side of the luxury leather goods business uh, alongside of Lou Frankfurt, an extraordinary mentor and the man who built coach into this major, major brand. Um, and to his credit, within just a few weeks, maybe because I was a little sassy, I'm not sure, of being there, he brought me into his office and I will never forget this. And he said, you know, no one here cares you went to Harvard Business School, so just take off those stripes and you're going to have to earn your way, demonstrate that you understand the business. And to his credit, he gave me the opportunity to learn everything from the tanning to the and leather to production, threw me behind the counter to sell. I ultimately was product manager for coach for handbags and then uh, led the turnaround of a previous incarnation of Mark Cross that we had acquired. So an incredible seven years, at which point then I jumped to technology and I was a co-founder of the company that invented the paid search business model, which was called goto.com, later renamed Overture. And of course, that was an extraordinary ride in the late 90s when the internet was just taking shape and we took the company public in 99. And I'll be trying to repeat that ride for the rest of my life, Um, you know, get to a billion dollars in a short handful of years and take a company public. Um, but what was lacking for me was a real product. I'm a product person by definition, but I really came to appreciate the value of technology as a disruptor and as a lever for change. So that really leads to one atelier. I spent several years kind of bouncing around back in New York, trying to find or figure out the perfect thing and ultimately landed on one atelier as a byproduct of a couple of conversations I'd had with very casually with women and also quite frankly, my own experience. Um, that from a consumer perspective, luxury was broken, the experience no longer was joyful, 
the client was spending thousands of dollars for a bag that she wasn't ultimately wearing. And I distinctly remember a moment in my apartment where this, I told this woman I loved her bag and she proceeded to tell me everything that was wrong with it. And it was amazing that she had spent so much money for a bag that she had so many small points of dissatisfaction. And this sounds like a, a crazy thing to worry about when there's so many other problems in the world. But at the end of the day, a bag is such an important part of a woman's life and in many cases, anybody's life. Um, so getting it right rather than having to spend the thousands of dollars and then having it have a nice place in their closet seemed like a reasonable pursuit. And she herself said, if I could just have customized the hardware, the shoulder strap, different components that were currently now really causing her to veer away from that piece. And what dawned on me at the time, and I started reaching out to a couple of people to um, be co-founders who were in the industry from different perspectives, was that customization could really be the change agent for a lot of things that we disliked about the category when we had worked in it. Um, And one important one is, well, two important ones. One was the massive inventory required to support product in the in the market, um, largely because we produced a forecast. And then you have all this forecast sitting in all these different locations for sale, uh, which leads me to the second. For me, wholesale is just a very challenging model. I think it takes the creativity from the owner, doesn't reward the creative people, you know, by any means. It's very challenging. There's all sorts of technical and other things you have to get up and running. It's amazing more brands don't die simply by trying to be in wholesale. And at the end of the day, you lose the contact with the cl- with the client. They're representing your your brand. They're in many cases not even representing it. It's kind of thrown on a shelf. So unless it's concession and a lease model, which I'm all for, because then we own the relationship and we own the presentation of the product and the ambassadors on the floor are on our payroll. We quickly realized that we were able to create a whole different model with One Atelier. So ultimately, when we started One Atelier, we really created it as a tech-enabled custom luxury brand uh, and one that is really natively sustainable uh, and really the only truly natively sustainable luxury brand in the world by simple virtue of the fact that we produce everything to order. Um, And the intention at the beginning, and I think that has gotten so much more refined post-COVID, and we'll talk more about that, is that we really wanted to redefine the entire value chain from the consumer experience and the joy that it delivers by enabling a client to design and get exactly what she wants to our business model, which is 100% direct to client, wherever she may be, and she may be in a retail store if we're in a concession, but we always have that relationship to the fact that we are trying to disrupt the entire supply chain in many ways to ultimately the point that we handcraft each piece to order here at our atelier in Manhattan. Fascinating, Stephanie. Thank you. So many questions. I'd love to just before we bridge into a bit more about the journey you've you've been on, I want to pick up on one thing you said, which was just that idea of luxury being broken and that that's no longer joyful. Could you just talk a bit more about that? I would love to. Um, you know, there was a pot, there was a time when luxury actually meant bespoke. It actually meant something that you would go and design with somebody, probably closer to a couture, whether you're talking about apparel or accessories. Um, and even in the early days of the luxury brands, I mean, I remember getting my first Gucci bag. It was a really big deal and it was a beautiful piece. Um, I knew at the time it was being made in Italy when, and I bought it in Italy um, and the joy. And, and I remember being in Italy when at the shop and the experience of the whole process was just special. I, I was very young. They did. I was in college at the time. I was studying in Italy. They didn't make me feel like I shouldn't be there. Um what we hear today when we and what I've experienced, to be honest, and one of the mot- motivations to start the brand and also what we hear from our clients in a lot of research that we've done is that um, 
you know, pretty much it's widely known that most of the product is crafted in many regards abroad, not abroad towards Europe, but abroad in the other direction, that it's these brands have gotten so big that you know, mass production is just um, so it's very likely that you and thousands of other people are going to be carrying the same bag. And the experience of going into um, a store and feeling that there's a very personal relationship. And that's a big, big thing that we were really focused on is how do we rewrite that relationship with the client? How do we maintain a dialogue that's more than just an update email when there's a sale at the shop? Um, and so we were hearing repeatedly that folks who had been going to these brands for many, many years were no longer feeling that same kind of experience or connectivity with the brand. In our case, I still communicate with all of our clients. Um, if something gets written, I know what's gotten written and then we decide who's going to respond. Um, but in many cases I do because that's a way for me to really tap into the humanity of the brand and also to really understand what the client you know, needs are or even hopefully you know, positive commentary about our brand. Um, and I can tell you, uh, and maybe this is perhaps the most important point, the whole point of creativity was at the, the nexus of our business. We really wanted to unleash the creativity for the client because we see it as such an important way of um, self-expression, self-validation, mastery, and the creativity had been stripped from luxury. And we're all about pulling out that creative spirit, giving men and women, giving people the opportunity to really paint on this canvas called the handbag in a world where there's so few moments where you get to do that unless you're in a creative industry. Um, and for us, we have seen repeatedly the joy of that evokes the joy of designing something, which is a very addictive process, and the joy of receiving this masterpiece that you've co-created. Ultimately, that is something that has been completely pulled out of the experience of the luxury, of the more classic luxury brands, that notion of being a creative partner in the experience, in the journey. Thank you for that. So some of the things I've been taking out so far um, beyond the idea of luxury being broken, the reinvention of luxury is... The customization point, the, the the tech enablement, which we'll come on to talk more about, um, that notion that people have lost the connection with these you know, scaled up major luxury brands that we have nowadays, and the the notion of the creative spirit. But what else would you pull out for Stephanie in terms of you know the genesis of the business back in 2015 and and, and the drivers and and where and you know where you've gone to since then. You know, I, I, I always hesitate to say this because there's this notion of build a bear for handbags and it's much more than that. I've always been a student of people and I I like nothing more than just sitting in a cafe and seeing people come by and how they talk, how they dress, how they interact. And luxury as it stood was sort of whitewashing us all to be very much the same. And a big piece of our motivation was to celebrate originality, to celebrate what makes each person unique. One of the funny stories about our brand in terms of our you know, folklore, if you will, is my colleague Frank and I had this notion that we needed to codify, like build in and program. If the client chooses metallic Napa, metallic anthracite Napa for the body, then we have to establish all the things that we think are okay to go with metallic anthracite Napa, which on the one hand is not possible to code. And on the other hand, was completely antithetical to what the original vision was. And so while it felt a little scary, we said, we're just going to let it rip. They can choose whatever they want to go with whatever they want. And we tried to provide guidelines and coaching and stylists 
But at the end of the day, and I can tell you it just happened recently, a woman designed a bag and we tried to coach her slightly in a different direction. She was resolute that that's where she was going to be. And we learn this every time. It's a beautiful bag. It's a beautiful bag. It's not something we would have envisioned. It is. We have not made the same bag twice ever, thousands and thousands of bags later. And it's exactly what we hoped, which is that we're evoking this creative spirit of a person. This is her fifth version of the same bag. She just loves this particular silhouette. And every year she comes back and designs a new one, which by the way, is an important point about our brand. We have huge loyalty and repeat purchase and we have zero returns. I think it's almost hard to believe that, but we really have um, this incredible loyal following. But just to get back to the point, we decided let the client design whatever she really wants. And we've really only seen beauty come forth. And that was, you know, by definition, each of these bags represents the client, her life, her journey, something in that point of time in her life. Maybe it's a wedding gift or a graduation to her niece or nephew. And it's the story. And for me, that's the beauty of luxury. It's the story of our brand, which has certainly gotten deeper. And it's the story of our client. Um, and how um, this bag is representative of that. So right in the midst of um, your development as a, as a business and as a brand, we had this thing called COVID, which landed. Um, so that must have had a huge impact upon, upon you and the business. And um, it'd be great to hear about how the experience changed your strategy. So the short run, you know, at the time, uh, I, I would say that One Atelier has been one of my more um, challenging startups in terms of finding product market fit, getting uh, all the many components. We're running multiple businesses, a tech business, a creative and design manufacturing business, a sales and marketing business. Um, but I, 19, 2019 was really seminal. We had partnered with a couple of doors with Nordstrom as a concession, a leased shop. We had really gotten scale, proven out the model, the product market fit. It was a very the product market fit. It was a very exciting time. Uh, we were looking at expansion with Nordstrom, a pretty substantial expansion in the beginning of 2020, and therefore we were lining up investors who were excited about that growth story. Uh, so yeah, uh, March 16th when we closed the doors was a really really difficult day for so so many reasons including the fact that we had to essentially furlough or ultimately release, you know, over half of our team. Uh, and that included all the selling brand ambassadors in our Nordstrom doors. So we never let go of who we were, but we knew that we had, we had to make a decision. And ultimately, I guess it was my decision. Are we just going to roll over and die? Because that was the easy answer. But we had seen the light and we saw what was possible. And we've always had this belief that we're doing something important for many reasons, unleashing and reigniting human creativity, creating a whole different approach from a sustainability perspective, given that every piece is produced on demand. So we decided to fight the fight. Um, And that included a couple things. The merchandise that came back from Nordstrom got heavily discounted, which we don't do as a practice. And our clients, to their incredible credit, bought a lot of it. Um, And again, we didn't have much in Nordstrom, but we did have just presentation spots. So clients could try things on as they were customizing their pieces with our brand ambassadors. Um, but quickly we, you know, Governor Cuomo was talking about design a mask, all our manufacturers in New York, you know, design masks, design robes, d- gowns, design anything you can design and we'll buy it. New York's going to buy it. So we designed a mask and it was a really good mask and we tested it and it was performing exceptionally well. And we took the whole road um, to go towards N95 certification, arduous, painful, horrible road to N95 certification, but we did it because New York State gave us a half a million dollar grant 
to design, develop, and produce this mask. And we were, I mean, they didn't give it to us. We applied for it and we qualified for it. At the same time, we were also working with a couple hospitals in the city who desperately needed a mask. So it served its purpose. But in the end, New York State didn't buy one single mask. Other people did. Uh, hospitals, hotels, restaurants. You know, we had a pretty nice business and masks for a while. Um, and at the same time, we continued to build our other business, which I'll come back to. But um, this was really our primary source, source of revenue for a little while. Uh, but New York State, you know, he just, whatever it was, they were not capable of buying a mask made in the United States because, of course, the cost was so much higher. And they were buying the masks from overseas as quickly as those could get produced again. And so we, you know, at one point said, listen, we just, you know, there's no market here for our $3.45 mask. So I think, you know, when you can buy them from, from Asia for 20 cents or something. So we put it on pause. Uh, we still have it if there's another pandemic and we're very close. So we have all the testing, the certification, you know, we're a nano minute away from having that certification. But at the same time, it allowed us to drill deeper on what our overall strategy was. We did a lot of technology work to continue to build out our proprietary customizer. We didn't let go of the original business. It gave us the time just to put our head under the radar and continue to work through things. It challenged us to drive deeper on our sustainability proposition. So that when we came out of the pandemic, we had a much clearer vision of that. And that was great because, you know, hey, it took a pandemic for people to understand the impact we could have on our planet. And, you know, all the fashion brands, I think, had the same realization that this sustainability and this um, climate crisis were real. And we each had a role to play in solving it. And especially in fashion, which is the second largest um, polluting industry in the world after oil and gas. And I'm happy to share more about that if you'd like, but the facts regarding the impact, the negative impact that fashion has on the environment are staggering. Yeah. If you could um, talk us through a bit more about that for the listeners, I think that would be, that would be great. So on the one hand, um, fashion produces 2.1 billion tons of the world's carbon emissions. Um, a large part of it's coming from upstream, the raw material production, uh, the prep, you know, even think about leather. There's a lot of people who have real concerns and, and, and valid about the methane from the animals and importantly, the carbonization coming from um, industrial agriculture, which supports in many regards the animals for the meat industry. Um, secondly, fashion is using 98 million tons of non-renewable resources annually. Um, and in many cases, these are oil-based materials that are not renewable. Even vegan today, a lot of it still is backed with some kind of fossil fuel derived product. And I think the one that we strike right at the heart of is the third point that we're generating 92 million tons of waste annually. Uh, we're the second largest polluter in the world and over 13 million tons of that are simply overproduction and excess inventory from fashion that is just being dumped or liquidated or in the past incinerated. Although I think most folks have stopped doing that now. Um, and we even contribute to 20% of the global water pollution. So I personally didn't even realize this. Um, tanning, let me just say tanning with the chemicals and the uh, impacts of the chromium, which really interfere in biodegradability. I, when I came into this and when I left Coach and Mark Cross, I didn't know this. Um, and it's really been the last you know, through two, three years when we deep dived and started to understand the impact and asked ourselves, how could we have an impact, a positive impact in turning this around. That's helpful. Thanks, Stephanie. So um, just in terms of you've been on a, you know, an extremely exciting and, and challenging journey, what, what would be some of the key learnings that you'd share with the listeners from, from that journey? Oh, so many. Um, I mean, one, and it, you know, just never fails to 
bite me in the butt, but um, you need to have a plan. You need to have a plan. And it seems so simple, right? But during COVID, I felt like we were flying a little bit by the seat of our pants. And I also didn't have many folks around me who could be part of that kind of senior planning process. Um, that's changing now, but you know, you, you kind of go where your plan says you're going to go. And if you don't have a plan, you don't end up there. And so I, you know, realized quickly that we needed to get someone back at the helm of the ship. And oh gosh, that was me. Um, and not just scrambling every day to figure out where the money was going to come from or what we were going to, where we could sell our next mask. So that was just a good reminder. You know, you go to business school and all this, and there you are in the fire and you're like, where's the water? <laughs> a second is, I'm just a believer in, and that's really our, we've been playing with our new mission statement, our new vision statement, really. And we've been, we've come up with this vision. I'd love to hear your reaction and reignite human creativity through custom design. I'm just, a, I just love the role of creativity, you know, so I've come to a conclusion in my life, you know, and I'm fairly further along than many people. Um, like joy is what it's all about. And moments of joy become fewer and farther between as we get older we need to grab them when they go screaming by because it's a fleeting moment. But without those moments of joy, you know, the rest is nothing. And I believe we deliver joy. I believe that creativity is a source of joy. I have a nine-year-old, I'm a later stage mom, a later stage single mom. Having seen the role that creativity plays in her sense of mastery, her confidence, just letting her fly her flag, whatever that is, and whether it's modeling clay or her dolls, and it struck me that we lose those opportunities as we get, you know, along in life. And unless we're in a creative pra uh, pr uh, professional field, and yet human creativity is the source of everything. And it's definitely a source of joy. You know, think about going to a clay where you get to be on a potter's wheel, a clay studio, or these silly ceramic studios I go to with my daughter where we paint something and throw it in the kiln. Um, and there's a thousands of ex examples, but there's just no space in our lives anymore. And so when we have the opportunity to bring a woman into that design process uh, and, and see the joy that the designing evokes, and especially, as I said, the end result, this masterpiece in her hands that she's co-created, I think no matter what I do in my life, that's been a big lesson is just creativity is really the start and end of anything that's really important and good in terms of delivering joy. And joy is what it's all about. Um, on a more you know serious note, the client, you know, I think if you were to ask what's been one of our harder obstacles, which is something we've learned, uh, a lot of women just don't actually believe they're creative and they don't believe and they don't have the confidence because they don't believe it's actually their right or privilege to create something for themselves because they've all been taught, especially in luxury, that we need to get something that someone else has designed because they are smarter, more creative, more clever. And I understand that the role of brand has a lot of the role of brand and logos has an important role as a proxy. Cause if you're not a very um, experienced shopper in luxury, then that logo is the proxy for quality, for craftsmanship, for materials, even for acceptance by everyone around you. It's an incredible moment when we have a woman who's got that closet full of luxury bags and she, and all of our clients do. And she says, I'm moving off the range. I'm designing my own bag. I don't need that logo. I recognize quality workmanship and materials now. And um, I want something that's uniquely mine. We've, we've started to be able to codify when that happens in our client's journey. Uh, and so we don't expect them to throw all their bags out. We just want to have a share of closet and a place in that shelf. And the good news is they tend to wear our bag more than the other bags. But the lesson around how do we make it easier to engender that confidence and to help our client go through that process, especially if we're not there with her. 
um, we try to be with her more than not, but we do have a, you know, an online business an online channel at standalone and what can we do with technology to help get her through that process more comfortably and confidently? Thanks for that, Stephanie. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, so many of our clients, they, they make the mistake by their own admission of um, when they're developing a sustainable proposition of foregrounding the, the sustainability. Um, and, and in fact, as we know, you know, people, first of all, come to a, a sector or category with you know, certain needs and wants and, and desires. Um, and sustainability has to feel authentic within that combination of, of, of drivers. Um, and, you know, you, you've talked about uh, tech enablement, customization, you know, joyfulness, the creative spirit, um, so the concept of new luxury, as well as sustainability. It'd be great to just understand a bit how you have understood where sustainability fits within all of those different elements because it's a sort of ecosystem which makes that overall proposition richer isn't it to to the to the buyer um i think there's a couple questions there and so i'll first talk about how i how we view sustainability and then um how we make it matter to the client in an authentic way um so i we and i view sustainability as really uh well it's called circular for a reason so starting with the fact of raw materials and uh, the supply chain so what's happening in that continuum uh, what is the source of the materials what is the impact that sourcing those materials has on the environment and even the animals in many cases that are involved in that process and that's something that we'll come back to and then there's where we have always solidly sat which is the manufacturing and whether you produce to forecast or you produce to order and that was always our holy grail in the beginning to be honest we didn't think of it as something to talk to the consumer about we were just damn proud that we were doing it ourselves and when we did talk to the client her eyes kind of placed over. Um, so it was just sort of our hidden secret that that's how we produced everything as a byproduct of customization. And, and I can tell you absolutely candidly that what you see in our little showroom here is all the inventory we own. There's no stock room or warehouse or distribution center somewhere else. And then there's the end of use um, considerations. And that's the third bucket. So they're reuse, recycle, resell, repair, refurbish. There's a thousands of re's, all of which are important. So how do I evaluate that? If you look at the re's, they're important. I mean, I'm becoming a huge client of Poshmark, both to resell my daughter's clothes. And by the way, we're finding a lot of stuff there now too, all her ski suits, some clothes for me. Um, so to me, that's very necessary. You know, the real real um, is also necessary, but on some levels, I feel like the real real was a band-aid to a problem we created. Uh, and why do I say that? Because they're not just taking our used luxury bags. They're a major channel for many brands, Burberry, Stella McCartney, you could name several, uh, who have this excess merchandise which is part of the produce to forecast problem. And so the real real has been a great solution. So I'm glad they created it. I know the founder and it was brilliant because she saw a problem, but it's just a problem we kind of, you know, created ourselves. Um, and then if you go back upstream um, to materials and, and um, supply chain, there's so many places to have impact. In our case, you know, we were already working and we are continuing to work with leather working group rated tanneries all in Italy. They're doing the best they can with respect to the use of chemicals, the use of water, recycling water, making sure chemicals aren't going into the water table, uh, animal welfare considerations. And so we were happy about that. They've been chosen very thoughtfully. But we asked ourselves, what could we do that's even better? Um, 
And, and, and that's what spawned Farm to Arm. We had this notion that already we're solving the overproduction process because we don't have any overproduction versus inventory. So what can we do further upstream? And we decided to land on regenerative leather sourced in America and then vegetable tanning it, again, by an old American tannery, which essentially invented vegetable tanning. So, you know, everybody's going to solve this however they best can. And certainly Caring and LVMH are doing it at a massive level and they have much more just day-to-day operations considerations. You know, how are we using lights and water across thousands and thousands of employees and offices? Those for us are hardly considerations, but we can have an impact by helping train farmers, which we're partnering with a group called Walden Local Meat, to train farmers to practice regenerative agriculture. And there's so many positives that come from that for sure for the client, but also in terms of the creating a viable financial path for the farmers and then helping them understand, you know, how to monetize the whole investment in the animal, because as animals given their life for the meat industry, that's not going away. So, okay, you know, if I get that, but then let's not throw everything else out. Let's to help them take the hides and get them treated properly. And that's where we are right now, by the way, is helping make sure that happens um, successfully and that we get to a vegetable, to our tannery, in our case, Horween, that we can veg tan it. So there's very little, if no chemicals involved in the process. Um, and resulting in a piece that in our case is going to be fully circular and biodegradable as well as sourced from regenerative leather. And, oh yes, of course, produced on demand. So we're really hitting now upstream on the first segment. And of course, we've always been in the second and down the road. I mean, our bags are meant to, to work for years. In fact, we have an ongoing free refurbishment program. If someone wants to, we just got a bad back, you know, she's had it for five years and she needed a brush up. And so we're sending it back looking like new. I mean, that's certainly part of our vision, but that doesn't feel like it's being sustainable as it is just being good business. And we build our bags for life. Um, but in addition to repair and refurbish, I'm sure there are opportunities for us down the road to uh, you know, resell and recycle and variety of other things. Um, but our focus right now is really on the upstream raw materials supply chain and, of course, continuing on on demand. And how does that motivate the, the you know, the client? Now, what's interesting today is you just, the client can't avoid it. It's incredible. For a while, she didn't want to hear it. Now she can't avoid it. It's everywhere. Everything she reads. I was getting emails during Earth Day from all these new launches that, quite frankly, were making me very anxious because I want to go faster with some of our things. And, um, and so what does that mean? It means it's our job to educate and inspire. Um, and how do you do that in an authentic way? So the client understands what, you know, you're hearing regenerative everywhere now. So what does that actually mean? And why does it impact you? And why would you contemplate regenerative leather versus something else at educating around truth around vegan? Um, and so we're trying to find different places we can do that, whether it's Instagram or emails, the people that are selling to clients in the, in the shops and trunks and pop-ups. Um, because it's a learning journey. And if our client can carry her bag and say one little thing when someone says, I love your bag, and she says, oh, did you know that it was made from regenerative leather, which is carbon neutral versus production, producing carbon, you know, we're doing our job um, because all of our clients, our vision is our client is an ambassador. Our client is an educator and she's going to spread the word, you know, thousand flowers blooming uh, better than we are. So we need to make sure she is, you know, equipped to do that. Great answer. Thanks, Stephanie. So where next for One Atelier? Well, we're gunning really hard and fast to get our farm to arm offering launched. The collection, which, as I said, is sourced from regenerative leather. It's going to ultimately be biodegradable. We're trying to get the measurements in place now, but our goal is not just carbon neutral, but in fact, 
carbon negative, um, and as always, zero waste. And that's our primary focus at the moment. I would say, you know, if there was another learning, supply chain reinvention is really, really hard. Um, and we have the best partners and, and we're working so well together and it, you know, covers farms and tanneries and some middlemen who've been helping us bring the two together and our team. And yet, you know, we're just bumping into stuff and it'll get solved, but it is just hard. Um, but that's where we come in because we're small and nimble and agile and we can do these kinds of things. Uh, so that's the focus is to get this small capsule launch and then continue to build new silhouettes into it. And we believe it's, it's a, it's a subline under one atelier, but we think it's a core catalyst to reawakening and getting more excitement around our broader one atelier value proposition. We also continue to, um, work on technology, as I was saying, and, you know, we have a proprietary custom design platform, but where do we take it now so that it facilitates an easier approach to design for a client? On some level, she needs to simply shop like she's just shopping on any e-commerce site. And oh, by the way, you can customize it because it, ne- it needs to be that simple. We'll explore, it's not for this year, but this is, an, at the end of the day, we've built a platform. We've built a technology platform that's extensible into virtually any category. And even a tech, a production platform where we're really learning the art and science of on-demand production. Those platforms can go into other categories and we're exploring what those could be. I mean, jewelry is a great example of one that we think is ripe for this kind of operation. Uh, and then we're exploring, you know, international expansion and where that could start. That's um, a couple of years out. I mean, we were probably going to be there by now, but everything is a couple of years out. And we're trying to understand where that great opportunity is. We have interesting pockets of women from China, from Europe, from Korea in our domestic client base. And so already we get some pretty good understanding as what kind of resonance our brand has within that cultural community. Thanks so much, Stephanie. It's, um, it's an incredibly inspiring journey that you have been on and, and are on. So I want to thank you for that. And I love the way that you're reinterpreting sustainability as, as something that's genuinely joyful, um, because I think oftentimes people think of it as being something which is um, a result of austerity, for example. But what you're doing is really you're, you're applying you know, creativity and tech enablement and customization trends to to your business as well as sustainability and reinterpreting in line with changes in culture around the notions of luxury. So it's incredibly exciting. It's a privilege for us to have had you on the podcast and, and thank you again. Uh, it's my privilege. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to Sustainable Futures, a podcast from Kantar. For all episodes and more information, visit kantar.com. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode.